Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your host, Michael Huber. Hey, welcome everybody. I'm Mike Huber, founder and CEO of the Freshman Foundation, and you are listening to the Freshman Foundation podcast, a podcast specifically geared towards understanding how athletes prepare mentally and emotionally for the transition from high school to college athletics. Today, my guest is Elliot Glenn. Elliot is an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator at Fordham University in their baseball program. Elliot and I met each other first probably a little over a year ago uh, when I was doing some work, uh, mental performance coaching work up at Fordham. And I'm just super happy Elliot has agreed to join me here today uh, on the podcast. Hey, Elliot, what's going on, man? How you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah. So uh, what's what's happening in uh, in your world now that uh, we're still under the kind of haze of coronavirus? Um, well, I think we've actually probably been on the uh, the luckier end of the spectrum. Our uh, our entire team and coaching staff have been on campus, you know, since since around Labor Day, beginning of September, and we are actually right at the end of our uh, competitive practice schedule. So we've been going about 20, almost 20 hours a week here. So six days a week, 20 hours since October the 6th. So about a month of team practice. We've played almost 10 inner squads. It's been refreshing to be back on the field and, and playing some baseball and, and everyone stayed healthy, which is uh, the most important part right now. Definitely. That's, that's great to hear. And it's been a great fall in the Northeast to play baseball for the most part. So you never know what you're, <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. Now, I mean, for those, for the guests who are on, Elliot not only is a coach at Fordham, but he's also an ex-professional baseball player, a pitcher, and was a pitcher and also a hitter too, right, at UConn? Is that right? That is correct. I played the outfield and hit my first two years at UConn and transitioned uh, transitioned to being the vaunted pitcher only, got the pitcher only title my junior, my junior year at UConn. So, yes. Okay. So, P.O. <laughs> 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 yeah, the dreaded those dreaded words that every uh, every coach and player hate to uh, hate to hear. Po, yes. I'm just curious now. I'm going to kind of go off track a little bit because you said transition, but like, what was it like when you had to lose the bat and just go strictly to being a pitcher? I think my uh, I'd like to think that my my transition was a little different um, than most. I transitioned to being a pitcher only because. Mainly we had we had some other talent on the team at the time that could play the outfield and and swing the bat and my my career had kind of you know turned to where my chance to play professionally was I had a better chance to uh, to pitch professionally than I did to uh, hit and play the outfield so I made a uh, I made a business decision to uh, to move to the mound only so that was your choice that was my choice and uh, as as you know continue to talk throughout this most two way guys it it usually is their choice. Uh, one way or the other, whether it is, you know, for professional or for development in hopes of playing professionally or playing time or physically, you know, usually the, the player comes to the, the that uh, aha moment of I'm more suited to be a hitter or I'm more suited to be a pitcher. And I want to focus most of my, you know, most of my practice time developing that specific area. Yeah. And so you mentioned that there was some talent on that team. I know one of those players is a pretty, is a pretty recognizable name. You willing to share who that was that was in the outfield there with you? Uh, well, yes, we, uh, in 2009, we were graced with George Springer in that freshman class and George was a pretty raw and but extremely talented, energetic player that we had. And he I w he didn't take my job. I won't say he took my job. <laughs> I had kind of transitioned into being a designated hitter and a pitcher at that point. But, you know, George and another big leader by the name of John Andrioli, who came in in the same class and another super athletic kid, Billy Ferreter. We had three guys in the outfield who were much, much more talented than I was. So my expertise, I guess, was needed on the mound much more than it was needed in the outfield and in the lineup. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty self-aware when you're 19, 20 years old to know like, hey, maybe this is what's going to be best for my long-term career. So I give you credit for that. It probably wasn't the easiest thing to, to volunteer to do. <laughs> it was better. I will say it was better for the team too. Uh, those guys were, those guys helped us win you know school we set school records for wins and those guys were very deserving of playing over me in those positions and they worked very hard at it they helped us win a lot so i know you're from southern california and we 
had, I think, you know, if for those of you don't who don't know the name, Ken Revisa, but Ken was one of the forerunners of sports psychology and baseball. He's gotten more publicity, I think, now, but he's since passed recently. Elliot and I have that connection as well, as I got to meet Ken through my training. And you also get to know Ken when you're in high school. That's right. Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to, I went to Long Beach Wilson High School. And if you pull up the school on uh, Google Maps or Google Earth, wherever you want to pull it up, we are located right across the street from Blair Field in Long Beach. And Blair Field is the home of the uh, Long Beach State Dirtbags, as they're known in the college baseball world. My coaches in high school were you know, former college players. And we had a, our pitching coach played at Long Beach State and knew Ken in, in those early, you know, early 2000, early to mid 2000s, where Ken was working with Long Beach State, is working with Cal State Fullerton in the dugout with those programs. And those programs, you know, worked with Ken on a daily basis. And a lot of those players, those skill sets that Ken teaches and, and uses were instilled in these guys in their playing days. And when they went into coaching, they kind of instilled those things as us and players. So I would say extremely lucky to have played for guys who were under Ken's tutelage. And Ken actually came and spoke to our high school team, uh, I think in 2005 or 2006, I can't remember the year exactly, but really opened our eyes to that area, you know, especially in baseball where the mental, the mental game is relevant on every single pitch. You have time in between pitches, and and that's one of the things that Ken Ken used to preach all the time is you have ten to twenty seconds between every pitch, and that's where the mental game really lives. And I think being exposed to that at sixteen, seventeen years old, and working, being able to work on those things were a huge advantage to our program at at Wilson High School in Long Beach. And if you look at some of the players that came out of there during that time, I think it really helped them in their baseball careers and where they uh, where they are now in life, whether it's still playing in the big leagues or in coaching or whatever they're doing now. Yeah, I mean, Ken had a knack for making things really that were complicated, really simple. And I, the thing that I kind of always took from him is he always, I, you know, when I heard him speak, he would say, like, where does the, the, the last pitch end and the next pitch begin, right? Which is basically what you're talking about, right? Like, how quickly can we move on from that last pitch and move forward and be, put ourselves in a position to get ready? So I just, you know, I kind of marvel at that. Just, you know, and I, and I always, you know, in talking to you, the little, the little bit that I know you, like, I always like kind of connected with you on that level, because I really do feel like that that has a really special place in the game of baseball. And if you can master that, you know, you're going to be so far ahead of the other players, which is really, frankly, what this is about in some ways, right? Is trying to get ahead of where are you going to go next and being prepared for that. So in high school then, so I'm just curious, like, were you a baseball only player or did you play other sports? So I actually did play other sports, but not for a long period of time. I actually played basketball as a freshman in high school, was prepared to play basketball again as a sophomore in high school. I went to Long Beach Wilson as a big high school. I graduated with 1,100 kids. It's a high school of almost 4,500 students, uh, at least back in 2007. I'm assuming it's probably about the same size now. So sports were competitive. There wasn't a need for, you know, most of the time players in the Northeast play multiple sports because if you graduate with 200 kids, you're best at, you, you might have 10 or 12 really good athletes. You know, we probably had 200 really good athletes. So I was probably going to play JV basketball as a, as a sophomore. And I had an opportunity to compete for a varsity spot in baseball as a sophomore. So I did not play varsity baseball as a freshman in high school. I played freshman baseball as a freshman in high school and actually was not guaranteed or promised a, a spot as a, as a sophomore on the varsity. And I didn't make the varsity team as a sophomore. I actually started out on JV. There are some older guys in front of me on the varsity's team and a couple of injuries occurred and I was needed probably about 10 games into the season and earned a starting spot and never, never really let it go. And I think that's a, that's a, that was a lesson within itself for me as I was giving, given a choice, like, Hey, if you go and play JV basketball, you know, you're going to miss out on fall baseball and being around the team and competing for a spot, or you can come out in the fall and try and win a spot as a sophomore. And I didn't win it. I didn't, I didn't get the spot. And that was, that was devastating for a 15 year old, but the lessons within that challenge probably helped me, helped me out down the line, that failure and dealing with that 
that failure helped me propel me to success further down the line. So I know I kind of went off on a tangent there, but I was mainly a one sport athlete in high school, but did play did play basketball in for a year in high school and actually still love playing basketball now. Probably one of my favorite sports to play. But yeah, mainly one sport. But even nowadays, right, you see you see kids specializing. I guess that's why I asked the question, right? You see kids specializing in sports at a much younger age and they're not even making it to high school and they're only playing one sport. Like, could you talk about that just kind of a little bit wearing your coach hat, your recruiting coordinator hat? Do you like just in general, like what's the view on that? You know, whether it's a personal opinion or whether it's a professional opinion about specializing. Yeah, that's a, it's a very interesting question. I think as coaches and I'm probably, you know, similar to most is you want, you want athletic kids. Now, whether athletic kids play multiple sports or specialize, I I don't know if there's any science or stats behind this, but a lot of coaches assume that the more athletic kids play multiple sports um, because they're able to, they enjoy playing basketball, they enjoy playing football, they enjoy playing hockey for, you know, what the, what the sport really provides for them on a competitive, you know, level. So I, I would be hard pressed to find any baseball coach in college that doesn't want multi-sport athletic kids. But I don't think that's to say that kids that specialize aren't athletic. Um, There are plenty of kids that specialize at, you know, a young age that become very good baseball players. I think the fine line is specializing shouldn't mean that you, you know, work in a batting cage seven months out of the year and, and play only five months out of the year. You know, I think that playing the sport, you know, having fun playing the sport. And I think a lot of that is the the competitive nature is where that specialization gets lost, kind of lost in translation. If a kid specializes, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to play at a higher level. So I think it's really case by case. But I think most college coaches would say like, yeah, we want multi-sport athletes. And what they really mean is we want athletic kids. We want kids that are athletic and competitive. I think that's a great answer. It's a great point, right? Like everybody's different, right? And I'm sure that's one of the challenges and I'll kind of save it for a little bit later, but I'm guessing that's kind of one of the challenges or one of the fun things as as somebody who's involved in the recruiting space of really trying to kind of solve that puzzle of like, what are the type of kids, you know, what's kind of the, what's the picture of, you know, a recruit look like and, and what are the attributes are we looking for? But I'm curious, right? So you said you played JV baseball for a bit, then you got called up to varsity. So you were only a base varsity player for two and a half years, you didn't play like a four-year starter. So what was the recruiting process like for you being kind of a mid-sophomore season player through the end of your senior year in high school? Like what was that recruiting process? What did that look like for you? Well, I think two things. I would I would first preface it by saying that the recruiting process has sped up tenfold in the last 15 years since I was recruited. So the amount of events and the amount of things that are available to high school baseball players nowadays are not even close to what was available for me back in 2000 and from 2005 to 2007. So it didn't, it wasn't really even on my radar at that point in my career. You know, it wasn't anything that I was was actually in front of me, anything that I was actually thinking about. Um, I probably started thinking about playing college baseball in the fall of probably the fall of 2005 as a junior. You know, I was like, yeah, I'd really like to play in college. I think that what that meant for me at the time was try and be really good, (laughs) try and try and be one of the better players on my team. That's kind of what that what that meant for me. If I wanted to get recruited, that meant that I had to be the one of the better players on my team. And I think that something that wasn't out of my control is or that wasn't in my control is I wasn't the best player on my high school team. We had guys who were more talented than I was and are still more talented than I am. So I really had to compete with those guys on a daily basis to get hits off them, you know, to get them out when they're at the plate. No, I didn't show up to practice every day and have it handed to me like I'm I'm here today. I'm going to be better than everybody. Like we had two first round picks on my team that I had to try and get out. More times than not, I failed. But that challenge that was in front of me, I think, helped propel me to be, you know, a college college type player. So in terms of how the recruiting process played out, you know, I really didn't get in. I didn't really hear from any college coaches until the summer after my junior year of high school. And that was letters sent to my house. Hey, we we've heard about you. We're interested in you. If you want to come to camp, that'd be great. Hope to see you around this summer. 
that was really the extent. And I think once July 1st, the rule back then was July 1 of a, of a kid's junior year, you could receive a phone call from them. Um, so I received, I still, I still remember the first coach and school that called me um, because I've actually had the opportunity to coach against that coach a couple of times. And that was Andrew Checkets, who was the pitching coach and recruit recruiting coordinator at the time at UC Riverside. He called me, I think at eight in the morning on July 1st. And I'll be quite honest, he woke me up that day. You know, I was 16, 17 years old. He woke me up that day. I probably lied to him on the phone and said, no, I've been up for a while, coach. It's, it's, it's all right. Thanks for calling. But since then, uh, Coach Checkets went from UC Riverside to the pitching coach at Oregon and is now the head coach at UC Santa Barbara, um, who I've we've actually played my, my time at the University of Hartford. We uh, we played them twice and then we were actually supposed to play them this year at uh at Fordham and I, unfortunately COVID happened and, and shut the season down. But, you know, the recruiting process has significantly changed since I was a player. And it, basically how it played out for me is I started getting offers, you know, around August of my junior, junior summer going into my senior year. Received offers from UC Irvine, uh, Long Beach State, Southern Cal, Loyola Marymount, and then UConn. So all Southern California with with UConn involved. And honestly, the, the reason that UConn got involved is my dad grew up in Connecticut and I still have family in the area. And I really enjoy, really, I'd, I'd been to the school, loved, loved the setup, kind of loved how much, how different it was from Southern California. Wanted to get away from my parents a little bit and attended a camp there, performed well. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. Decided that I wanted wanted a challenge, wanted to go away from go away from home to go to college. And honestly, was I still think it was the best decision I ever made. That's awesome. I stores is I've been there. My sister went to college there. It is uh it is definitely different. <laughs> it's a different place. It's I it's look, it's isolated. It's kind of in the middle of middle of nowhere, but you know, I would say that athletics at that university and just how much people care that, you know, the coaches and administration and how much they care about that place has made it what it is today. You know, Jim Calhoun and coach Oriema and, you know, starting with D Rowe and, and Andy Baylock way back when they wanted to build championship programs and they didn't care if the school was in the middle of nowhere. They didn't care you know, that it was a tiny town in the state of Connecticut. They they put their heart and soul into that place and turned it into the national brand that it is now. So what you see now is was started, you know, by, you know, Coach Baylock, D. Rowe, Coach Oriema, Coach Calhoun, you know, those people put their blood, sweat and tears into that place and turned the University of Connecticut into uh, what you see on ESPN these days. Very cool. That's great. I wanted to ask you too. So like you, you, you alluded to the recruiting process changing and I'm, I'm learning about kind of the nuts and bolts of the recruiting process. But what I do know and what I see is that there are kids who are freshmen in high school making commitments to division one colleges, particularly in baseball. So what's, can you kind of like just shed some light on kind of what that process looks like? And also I'm curious, like for you, you got offers as, as, as a, as an incoming senior, right? You were out of your junior year into senior year. Are there, do you, do you see that there are kids and parents who start to panic if they don't have offers early on in the process? Yeah, this is a, uh, this is a tough question. Absolutely. I can understand that families feeling feeling pressure in that regard um and especially with the amount of information that is available you know when i was being recruited in 2006 2007 you didn't really know who was committing to what schools and when they were committing um that information wasn't available there wasn't twitter there wasn't there weren't smartphones really so you the information was not spreading as quickly as it does now so the amount of information that is available to these families and these kids is probably not helpful for him. Look at this 2023 grad. He's a year younger than my son. and He just committed to X school in the Southeastern Conference. You know, their parents must have gotten him in front of the right coaches and they have, they hired the right people and they, they must know something that we don't know. So I can definitely understand on the family side and on the player side, it looks like that opportunity, you know, every kid that commits to a school is a lost opportunity for myself or from my son or for my daughter. So I can understand the, 
the supply and demand aspect of that. On the flip side, on my on my realm, on the coaching side, you do your best not to uh, not to recruit kids that are are too young. You know, and being a freshman in high school, geez, you haven't even played a year of high school baseball or high school sports and you're committed somewhere. That's, you know, that's a risk. You know, that's a risk that personally I may not be willing to take. So I I can understand on the on the family side kind of the pressure that's presented. And on my end, I try my best not to not to cave to that pressure and not feel like, well, look at all these kids that are being recruited and committing. Like I need to I need to step into this realm and start doing what other schools are doing. Look, if you enjoy playing the game, you are an athletic kid and you are continuing to get better on a on a daily basis and you put yourself in front of schools that you want to go to, they'll see you. They'll have a chance to evaluate you. And if you're good enough, you'll have an opportunity. I would just ask on the on the player side to ask the coach to be as honest and open as possible. And on my end, talking to a player, I was like, look, if this isn't a place that you want to go, then just tell me that. That's okay. But I, I understand what the information age and the amount of information on Twitter and Instagram and perfect game and prep baseball report. It can seem it can seem like the sky is falling a little bit, and I'll just say that it's not falling. I can promise you, it's not falling. You just have to trust me on that end, and if you're good enough, the schools will find you. So I guess I'll, I'll ask you then a little bit about your own transition from high school to college, right? So you talked about you're from Southern California. Most of your offers are Southern California schools. You get an offer from a northeast northeastern school, UConn, and you go there. So can you just kind of talk about what that was like for you? Kind of just that when you land on campus and stores, like tell me about kind of some of the things that you went through and trying to get acclimated to, to that new location and being a college athlete. Sure. Well, being across the country, you know, I didn't really have my parents to come scoop me up, you know, when I needed it or I couldn't go home, you know, on the weekend. So I was essentially there and I had to rely on myself and my teammates, you know, and I think that was that was important. You know, creating those relationships with my coaches and teammates was really important for me. I would say, you know, my challenge is I'm also an only child. So my parents were really interested in how I was doing and are you all right? Is everything okay? What can we do to help? And I always appreciated and still appreciate that to this day. But becoming self-sufficient, I think that was the number one thing on on my list. And I I would say the number one thing that I want to instill in our players today is be self-sufficient. You know, if you need help, if there's something that isn't going well in your life, like I want you to be able to talk to me. But when it comes to going to class, when it comes to, you know, eating three or four meals a day, when it comes to taking care of yourself, be self-sufficient. I think I, on the flip side, I'll say like, you know, as a, as a young college athlete, you know, I probably wasn't the best at taking care of myself all the time in terms of going to bed at a reasonable hour, putting the right food in my body. Um, those are one and two, two things that you can absolutely control on any given day, you know, getting enough sleep and, you know, eating correctly. You know, I probably wasn't very good at that. And it took me some time to learn those two things, getting acclimated in the weight room. I never lifted weights in high school. So that was learning how to do that took some time. I think I kept my mouth shut and i watched and I learned before I started making excuses or asking too many questions. I think questions are good, but you can actually answer a lot of your questions by uh, by observing. Um, and those were those were some lessons early on in my college career. Those were the first things I needed to those are the first things I learned in my college career that I think helped me be successful down the road. But my first year in college was, I'll be honest, it was it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. Yeah. And you're not the only person to say that. So we, you and I have another kind of random, interesting connection. So one of the other, one of the other guests I'm going to have on the podcast is a guy named Mike Murray. Mike played in the giant system. Mike played at Wake Forest. Mike also coaches high school baseball in New Jersey. And I've, he and I have worked together for a couple of years. I was on his staff, Mike and Elliot played in the Cape Cod all-star game. He was, Mike was the catcher. Elliot was the pitcher. And, you know, without kind of speaking for Mike, but one of the things he's always told me when we talk about that transition is, is that first year of college was by far his hardest year. He went from being, you know, all state two years in New Jersey, one of the best hitters, you know, kind of statistically all time to hitting 200 and being like, what the hell am I doing? Just from a competitive standpoint, 
it's hard because the level of competition steps up, but then you've got all these other life changes that you've got to figure out on your own, which is just not, just not an easy thing to do. Absolutely. I think, uh, and those challenges, there's also like your expectations from yourself. I don't, maybe expectations isn't the correct word. Maybe it's, uh, I'm not sure what the word would be, but how you see your career playing out, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I've committed to state university and uh, I'm going to go there. I'm going to play as a freshman. I'm going to be great. You know, it's going to be a lot of fun and we're going to win a lot of games and I'm going to get drafted and move on to pro ball. And in reality, it's, you know, your progression and your career is not a straight line. You know, it's not it's not straight up the hill. There's there's peaks and valleys. Um, and we talk about that, too, in the mental game uh, a lot, too, is, you know, a lot of the best players are a little more even keel. They don't have these peaks and valleys. The peaks and valleys come within the game itself naturally. Um, and I think a lot of players and, and myself included, you go to college and you expect that it's going to be a straight uphill like this is going to, I'm going to get better every single year. I'm going to play every single year. And that doesn't happen for anybody. You're going to fail. The quicker you can wrap your head around the fact like, Hey, I'm going to, there's going to be days I'm not very good. There's going to be days that I fail. That's the, that's the reality. So sometimes our expectations in reality don't, don't line up. And when we aren't prepared for those failures or haven't had that talk with ourselves, that failure is going to happen. That's when things really kind of go downhill and we start to question our ability. We start to question, why am I at this school? You start to question the coaches, you know, you start to question everything because what's happening and what you expected to happen aren't lining up with each other. And you've made reference to it a number of times, you know, controlling the controllables, right? As a mental performance coach, you know, that's something we talk about all the time, whether you're, you know, 14 or you're, you know, you know, you're a professional athlete, like in your case, right, when you were talking about your transition from the outfield to pitching, you could control who's coming in to the recruiting class right so we can either we can either kind of linger on that idea like why is this happening to me or you can kind of look at the situation objectively and say what can i do differently and you made a choice right and so a lot of this process, I feel like as a mental performance coach, is helping young people to make good decisions, right? And part of that process of making good decisions is developing an awareness of what's actually going on around you. And I would I would venture to guess that, and you, I think you've said it, I would venture to guess that the adversities you faced even in high school as a player really helped prepare you for that transition into college. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. That's fair. And that probably wasn't something that was created for me. That was just something Thing that was there. And that's probably, I would say, a challenge for specifically baseball in the Northeast. You know, it's it's not a hotbed. I think it's not a hotbed for baseball, although I do think there is a there's a lot of talent in this area in the Northeast and it's getting better every single year. But the talent's a little more spread out. So most guys that are playing Division One baseball are the best player on their team. And they may not be challenged within their immediate circle every single day. So I would, and sometimes it's, you know, do you want that challenge to happen organically or do you need to, you know, do you need to create it? And sometimes it needs to be created, creating that challenge for you. Like, Hey, I'm going to go play for this team where I'm not the best player. You know, I'm going to hit eighth today. I'm going to hit eighth and play second base instead of shortstop. Um, Sometimes you need to create that challenge for yourself. And that's really, you know, that's really, I think, where you kind of create the, those mental, the mental game for yourself is, hey, I'm not the best player on my team or I'm not the best player on my field on the field today. How am I going to navigate this game or this practice to have success? I mean, that's you're preaching, preaching to the choir here. I, I, be, I believe in that, but I can't imagine that that's something that every kid or every parent, for that matter, instinctively thinks, right? Like, let me make this hard for myself so that I'm struggling on purpose. Rather, it's usually, or you could definitely say it's every now and then you see people who are trying to create the perfect conditions to make myself look as good as I can possibly look. So I'm going to ask you to kind of put on your recruiting coordinator, assistant college baseball coach hat. So, I mean, I guess before I ask you in more depth, like, can you tell me more about your role at Fordham as a coach? Like what, what's your day to day look like? Yeah. So I'm in charge of the, of the pitching staff at Fordham. So really my, my job is the two most important aspects of my job are to find student athletes that are good fits for our program and to make them better. 
when they get to campus. So find, you know, the, the right people that put in our baseball program. And then once they get into our baseball program, make them better, better players, better leaders, better people. So those are the two most important aspects of my job. Now within those realms, I work with the pitchers on the, on the player aspects. So creating throwing programs, arm, arm care routines, planning out the day for, for each pitcher, what, what needs to be accomplished, what we're working on, what we're doing well, what we're, what we're struggling with specifically there. And then on the recruiting end, it's answering emails, watching video, communicating with prospective student athletes, um, and then handling, you know, nationals letters of intent, making sure once the signing period has happened, making sure they, they're taking all the necessary steps to uh, be ready for the following fall. I mean, so what you just referenced, I feel like I've heard it a lot because I've started to try to learn more about the way coaches, college coaches view recruiting, particularly in the baseball space. And the thing that I hear almost consistently from coaches at the highest levels of college baseball, they, I always hear them say, I want a recruit. I want an athlete who takes ownership of the recruiting process versus having a parent do it or having a coach do it or have somebody else do it. They really want the kid to communicate with them one-on-one, be honest, write a nice email, send a video clip, be straightforward. Like, is that kind of what you're looking for as well? Absolutely. I mean, you want, you want the student athlete to take control from the get-go. So whether that's communicating through email or text message, you know, whether it's an introduction, um, whether it's sending you video, whether it's calling me with any questions, whether it's, you know, setting up a visit, whatever it may be, you want the student athlete to be the point of contact. And any coach will say this. You don't want to be dealing. You don't want to talk to the parents about those things. Um, there are there are times when it is necessary to talk to the parents. You know, if you're logistically setting up an official visit and hotels need to be arranged, you know, travel arrangements, whatever, there may be a time where the parent needs to get involved. But 95% of the time, communication should be done with the student athlete. And because that's a, a huge, you know, huge way that any college coach learns about it somebody, how they communicate. Are they easy to talk to? Do they ask any questions? Do they have any idea of how they're trying to get themselves better on the field on a day-to-day basis? Do they know their own strengths and weaknesses? Those are those are huge questions that the player needs to be asking themselves, A, and then B, can they communicate those things to a coach? If 95% of the time the kid, the student athlete should be communicating directly, what's the real number? <laughs> in terms of, you know, what percentage of, you know, what percentages student athletes are actually communicating versus what your ex- expectations or desires are? <laughs> um, I, I do think it's a little bit higher than people give kids credit for. I probably think it's more like 75, 25 student athlete to player or to student athlete to, to parent. Although if you put the coat, if you put the, the coaches in there, then you're probably tweak that number a little bit more. I would probably say you're hearing from the student athlete one, travel coach two, and parent three. Um, and I think a lot of the times the reason that you hear from the travel coach is from the parent. So it's parent, the travel coach, travel coach, the college coach, and then student athlete. So if you want to add the coaches in there, now you're probably in the 50-50 range. So you don't hear from the parents as much. The parents go through go through the coaches a little bit more because, you know, the coach, we have relationships with coaches and, you know, some of the travel coaches played for me or some of the travel coaches coached me and some of the travel coaches, you know, we recruited a player from their organization. So we do have a relationship with that coach. So if you want to add that third that third variable in there, now you're probably close to 60, 60, 40 player to parent slash coach. So without asking you to be too specific, because I know this is something you may have to be careful about, but like, what are some of the attributes, right? When you're recruiting a kid, like just what are some of the general attributes you look for in the kid, the athlete, the student athlete to say like, Hey, like, you know, how much of it is on field performance and skill versus like intangible stuff, right? Like what, what are you looking for in general? It's probably, it's probably same. I'd probably say 60, 40 on field ability, 40%, you know, intangibles and, and attributes. You have to have the skill set to play first and foremost. So it can't be a hundred percent intangibles and 0% on field ability. So there has to be a inherent ability to play the game to begin with. But 
but I do think that those intangibles are very important in terms of being able to communicate with a coach, understanding. I think one of the biggest intangibles is the self-awareness. I think self-awareness is probably the biggest intangible or the biggest attribute that a player can have, especially a young player. Hey, this is what I'm good at. This is what I struggle at. This is what I'm doing to, this is what I need to get better at. Um, and I think that's what is being looked at. That That's what's being looked at is, hey, is there an ability here? Is there a, an inherent skill set to play the game? Two, does the player understand their skill set and what works for them or what they're good at and what they're trying to improve. I would imagine that when you're recruiting high-level kids, high school kids who've been the best player on their team, especially like in the Northeast, like you said, that might not always be obvious to them, right? Because a lot of people in their lives, whether it's travel coaches, high school coaches, parents, whoever, friends, teammates are telling them all the things that they like to hear because they are performing, right? And then they get to college and it's a different, it's a different ball game. Yes. A big reason that you want to see if a player understands what he's good at and what he's trying to improve or get better at is down the line when you may actually coach this player. Are you going to be odds and ends at what what we need to be working on on a daily basis? If I think that you need to be throwing your change up more in games, but you think your change up's not very good, or you don't need to be throwing your change up because your breaking ball is so good, then we're going to always be butting heads on, hey, I want you to try this because this is what the information says. This this could be really good for you. Or And you're saying as a player, I don't really need to do that because I'm good at these two things already. Then it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a tough relationship. So being able to be self-aware, and, and I think that's really what being coachable is, is understanding your weaknesses and trying to improve those. And as a coach, identifying weaknesses and understanding, seeing if the player, you know, is on the same page with you or do we need to sit down and talk about this and communicate? You took the word out of my mouth. Coachability was the word that came to mind when you were talking. And you know, what, what I might call it as a, as a mental performance coach is growth mindset, right? Like where can I get better rather than focusing on what I'm good at now or what I think I'm good at? Because, you know, learning more and listening more about athlete development in general, baseball in particular, it sounds like there's a lot of late bloomers, right? Kids who have great skill, but physically might not be, you know, where some other kids are, right? Athletes are, but then they start to grow into their bodies. They learn how to lift weights. They learn how to feed themselves properly. They learn how to sleep. And all of a sudden you take a, you know, maybe an undersized kid or a kid that's not that strong. It doesn't hit for power. And now you have a high level skill level kid. And now he's developing into a man. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the level of plague increases. I mean, I would imagine you see that some of that too as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, that's, that kind of goes back to players that are self-sufficient. You know, there's a, if there's a skill set there or an athletic ability, but it's, you know, raw and there, it needs to be fine tuned. You know, that's not going to happen if you just put the minimum amount of work in. If you're self-sufficient and you're meticulous about your work and you're you understand your weaknesses and work on those things, that's where that potential becomes translates into on-field performance. So being so, you know, going back to being a self-sufficient player, whether it's communicating with coaches or doing your doing your work on a daily basis, you know, that those go hand in hand. Definitely. I want to be mindful of time. I mean, I could sit and ask you questions all day. You know, I I, I mean, I wouldn't be here if I didn't love what we were talking about, but I also want to be mindful that we don't have unlimited time. But yeah. I, I did want to ask you about, I almost like I'm obligated to ask this question. Tell me about the mental side of the game, right? With the players that you coach at the college level and maybe some of the incoming players that you have, like, what are some of the the mental skills? Like, what do you, I mean, I guess I'll keep it open. Like, what do you see? I mean, obviously Fordham has a vested interest. Fordham invests in mental training with their athletes, but you know, what does that look like for a high school kid incoming? Do you see more kids getting mental training, you know, mental skills training coming in? Not really, to be honest. I don't see a, t- a ton of a ton of players working on that part of their game. And I think the the thing I always lead with, and something that I think is an important mantra, if you want to call it, is you know the mental game is you never figure the mental game out. It's never it's never something that you master. It's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. It's something that's it's relevant all the time. And that doesn't that's not just for athletics. That's for anything that you do in your entire life, you know, whether from schoolwork to video games to 
to having a family, you know, the mental, the mental game is constantly it's there and it's gotta be worked on and it's gotta be used. And I think the number one, the number one response that I get from our own players, and I could actually pull up some messages here. I'm not going to head, you know, I'm not going to use any names or anything, but we had some, we had some young guys um, this past weekend. We played an inner squad. We had some young guys who had some tough outings on the mound for the first time. And when you, you know, I let, I give them, I give them some time to kind of think about their performance. I'm not, I, I don't like being like, Hey, it's okay. Like 10 minutes after they get off the mound. And some of their responses are interesting. I had a kid who pitched on Saturday. I was like, Hey, we got, we're going to, you know, we're going to throw a bullpen on Thursday. We have, there's a couple of things that I'd like to work on for you. And his response was, yeah, I think Saturday was a combination of physical, physical issues and me getting into my own head, mostly getting into my own head. And another kid, it's like, I'm not really sure what happened. Just lost confidence in the pen, which carried over to the mound. As you see, the first thing that a lot of these players gravitate towards is, is here. Not, well, my fastball wasn't, I wasn't throwing hard enough that day or my breaking ball wasn't good enough. It was, it was here. So if it's, if the response is always here, then we need to work on here more than the pitch more than the fit, the more than the, uh, more than the velocity, more than the breaking ball. We need to work on, on here. So having a, having a practice plan or having a, a routine that identifies and addresses that part of the game on a daily basis, you know, whether it's incorporating the breath between pitches, whether it's having a focal point in the bullpen, you know, there's, there's simple, you know, and I'm just spitting out some of the simplest, simplest terms that are used, but you know, most of the time when young players have failures, they don't talk about, well, I'm just not good enough physically to do this. It's, in my own head, I didn't have any confidence. So those are the responses that are always that you're getting from your players and it needs to be addressed and practiced just like playing catches practice. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't have made written a better commercial for what it is that I do for a living. That's, I mean, listen, I mean, these are high level, high skilled athletes who wouldn't be at a place like Fordham if they didn't have the physical ability, right? So at that level, they have so many reps under their belt. It's It can't be about physical. I mean, maybe there's a bad day physically, but most days it's about what's my plan to go out and compete. You know, Revisa always said, you know, like, do you have to have your, your best stuff every day to compete? And I think that's it, right? And so one of the things that I've, and you mentioned good ones, right? Like, what's my, what's my breathing routine, right? Like, what am I saying to myself, right? I have one pitcher that I work with, you know, he wrote something in the brim of his hat. And in between pitches, he'd go to the hat and it had, you know, an acronym to remind him like, hey, that pitch is gone. Like, let me go out and attack, right? Let me go attack the next pitch versus like getting caught up in what just happened, right? You have to have an approach. You're right. If you don't have an approach, you don't have a way to reset yourself. You're going to get, it's going to be quicksand. You're going to just spiral down and you're not going to be able to get to get out of it. And I think that's really important. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges I have with athletes in any sport of any age, which is they don't understand as much as you try to tell them that practicing the mental side of sport is important. They only come back to it when something goes wrong versus being proactive about it. And I think that's a real big challenge for any kind of coach, whether it's a, you know an athletic coach like yourself or you're on a team or a mental performance coach like myself, kind of stressing that you've got to continue to get better at the mental game and invest time and energy in it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not something that's taught a ton either. You know, it's, you know, when you have a limited amount of time to have practice, a lot of coaches and a lot of players like, well, we got to get through playing catch. We got to get through bunting. We got to get through batting practice. We got to get through these three things. Like we're not going to have enough time to, to work on it today. And then when there's a lack of performance, when the lights turn on, you're always like, well, how come he can't do it in the game? How come he can't, why isn't he performing? And a lot of times when you get into the heat of the moment, you know, you don't have, how do you slow your heart rate down? How do you remind yourself what you've been working on physically all week. And it's the same, it's the same, you know, as a student, you know, struggling on being a decent student, but being a struggling on tests, like I'm not a very good test taker. And yes, are there, are there kids that aren't good at tests? Like, sure there are, but is it your confidence or is it your concentration? Like, is it the work is, is it your confidence or is it your concentration and your preparation? Most kids who are confident are confident because 
they're prepared, you know, especially on the field. Great, you know, great quarterbacks. They're confident, you know, Tom Brady's confident because he knows the playbook inside and out. He knows exactly what's, what he's going to do when this situation arises. And players that aren't focused during their preparation and they're not prepared when a variable is thrown at them or something doesn't go your way, what ends up happening is the heart rate speeds up and now it's just like fight or flight and I'm not quite sure what to do and I'm just going to keep keep going down the path I'm going down and hoping for the best. And when you hope for the best, more, more times than not, something's going to go wrong. I, I've heard it said more than once that hope is not a strategy. <laughs> no, no. But, 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 it's, but, but you raise a really good point. And one of the things that I'm really, I really stress with my athletes is decision making, right? So what you just described, right? We have all these things to do physically. I don't have time for the mental side of things, right? And I'll say, okay, I'm just like a lot of my athletes, I ask them to, to, to meditate do mindfulness meditation five minutes a day. That's it. All you're doing is training that muscle for five minutes a day. It doesn't take very much time at all. When you don't do it, all you're telling me is that it's not that important to you. So you're going to do what? You're going to text with your friends. You're going to go on social media. You're going to play video games. All that's cool. But don't be surprised when you get into a game and you can't you can't like be mindful and control your thinking or control your breath for 20 seconds between a pitch. Then you wonder what went wrong. There's a consequence to deciding as to how you spend your time, right? And I think I try to get athletes to understand that they've got to have the motivation to get better. And if they don't want to do it, that's okay, but it's only hurting them. You know, I think that resonates a lot of times because you're not telling them to do anything. You could do whatever you want. Just understand you're not going to get better at this at this craft, at this game, if you don't practice the mental side of it. Maybe they don't pick up on that as fast as you'd like them to, especially when you're, I mean, listen, your job is predicated on getting results, right? You're there to win games. I mean, you're, the, you're there to develop young men, but you got to win, right? If you don't win, you're probably not going to have a job in most places at that level. But at the same time, like if you tell somebody to do something, it may not be sustainable, right? You got to get them to understand that like, hey, this is for your benefit, but you need to figure it out sooner <laughs> sooner rather than later. Yeah. And it's like you're saying, it's, you don't have to dedicate a ton of time to it, you know, on a daily basis. But if you may not be a mental, a mental game wizard and have like all these counters for things that, you know, this happens on the field, I'm going to do this. This happens on the field. I'm going to do that. You may not ever get to that point, but you can, any, any player can get to the point where they can take a deep breath, breathe and say, what is, what is going on right in front of me right now? Anybody can, Anybody can do that. That's a choice. That's a decision. And there's very simple, very simple ways to do that. And if that's the extent that you get to in the in your mental preparation, that may put you ahead of three quarters of your competition. In high school, it probably puts you in front of 90% of your competition. In college, a little bit no different than your your physical skill set. You know, each level you go, the better the skill set. Each level you go, the better the the mental game gets for guys. But if the most basic step you get to is understanding your breath, what it can do for you physically and knowing where you're at, you know, the, the red light, yellow light, green light, Ken Revisa, what is happening? Am I at a green light? Like go compete. Am I starting to get a little flustered, a little rattled, you know, yellow light. All right. I need to step off regather, make this pitch, or am I at the red light? Things have spiraled out of control. I really need to take a deep breath and refocus, call timeout, whatever, whatever each guy has. But if that's as simple as you get to the breath, like that can take you a long way. I'm so happy that you mentioned the traffic light because I, I stole that right from Ken. I think a lot of people have, but I, I, I use that as, as a way to assess athletes. A lot of the time, what I forced them to do is think about like, what are you thinking and what are you feeling when you're typically going well with the green light? What's happening when you have a yellow light? What's happening when you have a red light? And I really forced them to think about it. And to your point about awareness, a lot of them don't even realize like what's happening when things are going good a lot of the times. Like they don't even know what they're doing when they're going well. It just sort of happens but they can tell you a thousand things that are happening when they're going bad, which is kind of interesting, right? But to force them to really think about like, when I find myself in these situations, like, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I doing to counteract or get back to the green light? So it's it's so huge, right? There's, there's so many things we could talk about. I want to try to wrap it up though here. And so I'm going to ask you one last question, right? So if there's one thing that you could say to your student athletes, the potential recruits coming in and to their parents, right? So maybe it's a two-part question. 
like what's one thing you would say for the, the, the recruit and what's one thing you would say for the parents of the recruits in terms of what they should be focusing on in this process? I, the one thing I would say to, you know, to the student athlete, to the player is to take ownership and be self-sufficient. It's your career. It's your it's your opportunity to, to play and to own it. So take control of that. Take control of that opportunity, which that's what it really is at the end of the day, an opportunity, and make the best of it. That's as simple as I can make it. Be self-sufficient and take control of it. And as and for parents and, and coaches alike, obviously, A, be supportive. Uh, my college coach you know, used to say like your parents are the one, the one people, you know, the, the people in life in your life, you can have unconditional love for you. They'll, they'll be there for you no matter what. So yes, be supportive of, of their goals and their dreams. And I know this is the hardest one because, and I deal with it with our own players. Like it's okay for them to fail. It's okay. Allow them to, to have a bad game, allow them to lose, you know, whether it's a playing a board game at home or whether it's even in the classroom, which it like allow them to, to fail every once in a while. Same with coaches. Like if a guy, a guy comes to you for a lesson or a guy comes to you for a bullpen and he throws a bad bullpen, like sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. Let them fail, let them struggle and do your best to create a challenging environment. You know, if you have guys that are on cruise control, tilt the deck against them a little bit. Make them create it, create a challenging environment. And that's that's mo- mostly for coaches and you know parents as well. Create a challenging environment for your for your kids. Allow them to fail. Not to say don't help them at all, but help them allow them to fail, allow them to pick themselves up and learn help them learn that you can combat failure through through hard work most of the time through hard work and, and good direction. That's awesome. I love, I love it. I love it. So I really appreciate you spending all this time to kind of talk to me about your experiences, both as a player and as a coach. I think this was great. I mean, I, I loved it. I, like I said, I could keep going all day, but you know, I just want to say that I appreciate you taking the time out. Do you, if you, if you want, can you you want to tell everybody like what your social media handle is? Sure. So right now I'm I'm only on Twitter right now. It's Elliot Glenn 07. So E-L-L-I-O-T-G-L-Y-N-N 07 on Twitter. I'm really trying to stay off of social media. I don't know if anyone's seen that Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. That's a that's one thing that I would recommend everyone to watch. It's not a book, I know, but so I'm on Twitter right now at the least. So any I, I don't tweet a ton of stuff. I retweet a ton of ton of mental game stuff. Actually, I try my best to tweet out some some mental game stuff. So that's where I'm at on social media. And then if anyone has any questions or wants to reach out, my email is on the FordhamSports.com uh, website under the baseball tab and roster. So you can, if you click on my link on the, on the roster, you could feel free to shoot me an email with any other, any questions. And uh, I hope I, I hope I helped. I hope I helped some people and Hopefully I didn't talk too much and hopefully everyone learned a little bit. I'm sure of it. It was awesome. Thanks so much, Elliot. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Looking forward to uh, doing this again. Absolutely. It'd be awesome. Take care. All right. Thanks. Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching, located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, follow along on Instagram at The Freshman Foundation. Please subscribe. Give us a like on iTunes, Spotify, leave a review, tell a friend. Most importantly, come back in two weeks ready to get better.